Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. This is the first of the four servant songs that are found in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah has a section in it that starts in chapter 40 and runs through 55 that is full of this hope and full of these promises that Yahweh makes to his people to deliver them and to reestablish them. And in the midst of that section, we find these four servant songs, the most popular of which is the very last one, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, where it talks about as a sheep before it shears is silent and all of those images that we have. But there's three others that give us an incredible picture of who Christ is and what it is that he came to do. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired and authoritative word. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who stretched out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Most gracious Father, as we come once again to your word, to sit under its healing authority. We ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit that we might understand your word, that we might be encouraged and comforted by the promises of Christ our Savior who has come and will come again. Strengthen me by your spirit that I might preach this morning in his power. In Christ's name we pray, amen. From time to time, we break here at Christ Church Conway from our normal preaching schedule to do an Advent series. We don't do this every year, but, but every few years we do that, and we're doing it this year. And as I've been thinking about Advent this year, it's actually become much more special to me than it has in the past. Many of y'all know that the church calendar isn't my favorite thing in the world. I've, I've fussed about it probably and probably made snide comments about it and, and whatever about it. You know, well, you don't find it in Scripture. But as I've thought about it this year, I've, I've begun to see its beauty in a really fresh way. Because when you look at the church calendar, in particular, the, the kind of three seasons that, that start 
today with Advent, followed by Christmas and then leading to Epiphany, what we see is this beautiful picture of promise, fulfillment, and surprise. See, Advent is all about the promises that God has made to his people to redeem his people, the promises to send Christ. And Christmas, of course, is the fulfillment of that, that he kept his promises and Christ, his son, came in the flesh to deliver his people from their sins. And then you get to Epiphany after the 12 days of Christmas, and that's the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles. And that's the surprise that Jesus isn't just for the Jews, but he's for the whole world. But here's what's interesting about it. When we think about Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and in those terms of promise, fulfillment, and surprise, then we go back and look at passages like this, we see that Epiphany shouldn't have been a surprise at all. Because what the Jewish people were waiting on, as we look at the promises that were made, as we see here in these servant songs, was a Messiah who would not be just for them, but for all the nations. What they were waiting on was the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem a people for himself that would be for all people. It would be, as the book of Revelation says, a gathering in of people from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. So really, Epiphany shouldn't be a surprise. It should be the further fulfillment, and it is the further fulfillment of the promises that we find here in the Old Testament of the Christ who is to come. And so as we read these promises and think about these promises this morning, they're helpful for us. Because what we see when we set these promises back in the context into which they were given is that Israel was calling out, longing, wondering, where God was. They were calling out from this place of of captivity, wondering as we read in chapter 40, verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak to me, O Israel? This, This is what they were asking God. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. That's what they were feeling. That's what they were experiencing in this exile, that they had been forgotten, that that Yahweh was disregarding them and, and not paying attention to them. In chapter 42, this, this servant song is the answer to that. They call out, wondering, where are you? Are, are, are you really in control? Have you forgotten all about us? And in, in chapter 41, he gives this answer saying, oh no, I haven't forgotten you. I'm the sovereign over all creation. I'm working my will perfectly. And then in chapter 42, he begins to tell us how that's going to happen. He begins saying, behold, my servant. There's a contrast here that's being set up. God has just rebuked them with this rebuke about the futility of the idols that they've served. And this this rebuke comes kind of twofold, beginning in chapter 41, 21. And notice in 24, the first rebuke ends this way. Behold, you are nothing, speaking of the idols, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. 
He's, he's saying, look at your idols. Behold, pay attention to them. Look at them. They're nothing. And then another statement about the futility of their idols is given beginning in verse 25, and it ends in verse 29. And notice again how it ends. Behold, look, pay attention. They are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So twice he tells them, look at your idols, look at these abominations, look at their emptiness, look at their futility. And then he begins in verse 42 with that same call to look. Behold, my servant. And what we're going to see in, in, in this song is that far from being futile, far from being empty, far from being worthless, here is one who can actually bring about the will of God for his people. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. One of the big questions of this text that, that, that we feel as Christians, the, the natural inclination to answer, who is this servant with, well, it's Jesus. But that's actually a, a difficult question for many people. Because if we look back in chapter 41, verses 8 through 10, he uses this same language to describe Israel. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So who is this servant? Who is this one that we're going to hear is going to come and bring justice? Well, it is, in fact, Israel, but it's the true Israel, the fulfillment of Israel, the fulfillment of all the promises to Israel, the one to whom Israel herself pointed, the actual promised seed of Abraham that Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 is Christ himself. That's the servant for whom Israel waited for so long. And, and he's the servant that we now worship in his name. And he's the servant for whom we now wait for his return. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. The spirit language is significant. We often wrongly think that, oh, well, there was the Old Testament without the spirit, and then there's the New Testament with the spirit. And certainly we, we see some distinctions of, of things that happen in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy at the, the, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, but we're wrong to think that the, that the spirit was absent from the Old Testament. It was the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who led the people in the wilderness, Isaiah tells us. It was the Spirit who led the prophets, we're told. It was the Spirit who led David to lead the kingdom in righteousness. And so to hear this language that I will put my Spirit on him is to set this servant apart as one who would do something special, who would do something out of the ordinary, who would do something wonderful and redemptive and revelatory for the people of God, for Israel. He was going to act in the power and authority of the Spirit of God. This servant 
who is the true Israel, who is Jesus. Then in the last half of verse 1, or the, the last line of verse 1, he tells us what it is that this servant will do. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Remember what Israel's context was as they heard this. They were living in exile, being threatened by Babylon and and hearing only all of these threats and wondering, as we read in 4027, have you forgotten us? Why do you disregard us? What gives? You've brought us out here for nothing. We, We hear the echoes of their common complaint that go all the way back to their journey out of Egypt. When they asked, have you brought us out here to kill us? What gives? They, like us, were an incredibly grumbling and faithless group of people. They looked at their circumstances, and they didn't see the abundance of blessing that they had hoped for and that they rightly see promised in God's word. They looked at their circumstances and saw brokenness. They looked at themselves and saw sin. They they, they looked for where is God working and felt forgotten, and, and they just said, what gives? We're oppressed by the people around us. We're we're undone by our circumstances. Where are you? We live in oppression and injustice. And the Lord reminds them, the servant, full of the Spirit, as we see the Spirit descend on Jesus in his baptism, this servant, he will bring forth justice to the nations. We remember the minor prophet who who goes and files his complaint with God about how bad the people of Israel are and and wants to know, what are you going to do, Habakkuk asks. And God says, oh, I'm going to do something. Watch. I'm going to bring these nations. Well, that won't do at all for him. He comes back to God and says, no, they're worse than your people. How is that going to work? But that was the plan. To use these pagan nations, these godless people, to come and discipline his people that he might then restore them and bring justice to all the nations around them. And this is exactly what we see him do. But he doesn't do it in the way everyone expects. He does it in the way they should have expected as we read this servant song. But what they expected oftentimes is very much like what we expect. They want, you know, glory and and swords and triumph and victory. They, They want the way of the glory. That's what they want. They want to live with a theology of glory where where they're exalted above everybody else in this grand display of how wonderful they are. This is why they so quickly went from laying down palm branches as Jesus rode in, hell, king of the Jews, to crucify, crucify, because they realized he wasn't coming that way. This was the realization that Peter had to come to when they come to arrest Jesus and he pulls down his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not how this works at all. And he puts Malchus's ear back on and heals him. And then goes bound to his death. 
They wanted one who would bring forth justice with glory and vengeance and power and triumph. And indeed, that day will come with the day of judgment. When, as we read in Psalm 2, this king, this anointed one, shatters the nations with a rod of iron. But first, he would come quite differently, as we see beginning in verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. He's not coming with clamor and fireworks and glory and brilliance and destruction. No, 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 not at all. He won't make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning quick, he will not quench. He's coming in gentleness. Now, to be sure, he will faithfully bring forth justice. But he'll do it from a completely different perspective. It's not the kind of justice that we want when we call out and clamor about trying to establish this is what's right. And we we post about it and and we rant and and rave and, and rage about it. And we all do this. He'll come in gentleness and humility and bring forth justice even through his death. This is the Messiah that was promised. This is the servant who they were told would come. One who would deal with them. And as we'll see with all the nations, in gentleness and kindness and love and servanthood. And this is exactly what we see Christ do. Yes, he had those moments of of, of righteous anger where where he turned over the money changer's table in the temple and and we see his impatience. If if we can even call it that, that's probably not the the right word, but but we see him dealing with the religious people who thought they had it figured out and, and he just gives more law to them. But then we see him with the woman at the well. Then we see him with Zacchaeus. Then we see him with the lepers and the blind and the lame and with the family of Lazarus and with his disciples. And we see him work justice without destroying them, without shaming them, without breaking a bruised reed or putting out that barely burning flicker of a fire. But coming alongside them, stepping into our world in the humility of flesh to love us and care for us and redeem us, even by giving his life. This is what he came to do. But then we're told, in verse 4, that this isn't a fool's method. 
he will not grow faint or be discouraged. How easy would it have been as we see what all he has to deal with, how easy would it have been for him to grow faint and be discouraged? As he faces temptation, as he faces the the, the faithlessness of his own chosen disciples, as he faces betrayal by one of the twelve, as he faces misunderstanding by all the religious leaders who knew these texts and should have been able to connect the dots, but instead sought to kill him. How easy it would have been for him to say, you know what, forget all of this. I'm not not dealing with y'all anymore. This isn't worth it. I'm going back to my Father in heaven. How easy would it have been for him to echo the cries of Israel, Father, did you send me out here that I should die? Because the answer to that is, yes, son, I did. That's exactly why I sent you. I sent you that you might die in this wilderness as the true Israel so that my people won't have to. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. If we long for true justice, and we should, it's found in Christ. Now, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that our response to injustice in the world is, well, Jesus, yes, well, Jesus, yes, but, but we who are united to him and who have been called to live in this world and do justice should finish that as we see injustice in the world with, well, Jesus, therefore, let me walk with you and let us pursue justice, true justice, biblical justice as it's defined in God's word. Let us pursue that even as we walk with Christ in this world. Verses 5 through 9, Isaiah shifts gears. The pronouns all change, and and no longer is it talking about this third person, the servant who will come, but many of the same points are made this time from the perspective of Yahweh and what he will do, and he identifies himself three times in 5, 6, and verse 8. Thus says God, Yahweh. And then he, he makes clear Exactly who it is that's talking. The one who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Therefore, thus says God, the Lord, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the giver of life. That's who is speaking. There's there's no bigger way to say, do you know who's talking to you? You need to pay attention. 
I am the God of all creation. I am the one who created you. I am the one who gave you life. I am the one who stretched out the heavens as far as you can see by the word of my power. That's who speaks. And I am Yahweh who revealed himself and covenanted with Abraham. I am who I am. I am the one who now speaks. Verse 6, he reiterates this. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And notice that that it's confusing here. Is he talking about Israel or, or this servant? And the answer, of course, is yes to both. Because the servant is the true Israel in whom physical Israel is actually defined. The servant is Christ. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Not just for Israel, but for the nations. This is why Epiphany, though it is a surprise, Jesus is for everyone, is really just more fulfillment. This is who he was announced as coming for. Not just the Jews, not just this ethnic group of, of people that descended from Abraham, but for the nations. Surprise, I will bring justice to the nations and light. What God is this? Who brings justice and light? It's our God. This is what the Spirit does. He brings both conviction and comfort as he shows us God's law. And we see in that that terrifying mirror our own sin and our own need and then directs our heart to his Savior who has fulfilled all of that and by his blood covered all of our sins, justice and light to the nations. But notice how this is framed. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Here is another announcement of the new covenant. We often go to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, because there the new covenant is called new covenant. But all through the prophets and in the latter chapters, especially, we see these announcements that no, this new covenant is being made. This servant who is coming, he is the one who is given as the covenant, the one who is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, the one who's the true seed of Abraham, the true Adam, the true David, and the true seed of David, the true Israel. That one I will give as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. For what purpose? To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. 
Now, yes, we can read this and should read this with spiritual emphasis that, that what we're bring, being brought out of is, is the darkness and the dungeon of sin and, and the condemnation of the law. And, and what we're being, having our eyes open to is, is Jesus Christ to whom we have been blind. The truth of Yahweh and His grace and His glory to which we had closed our eyes. But what we see also is that Jesus brings this in tangible ways to the world. Remember what He did. He came and He gave sight to the blind. He came and He made the, the, the lepers clean and, and He made the lame walk and He opened prison doors in the end. And all of this he did in fulfillment of what's announced here. This is why in Matthew, when when John the Baptist sends messengers and says, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? Jesus' response to them is, go tell John... The blind see, the lame leap, and the prisoners and the poor have good news preached to them. What's he doing? He's saying, yes, John, I am the one who was promised so long ago. I am the one who has come in fulfillment of what Yahweh said to y'all all those years ago. I am the one for whom you have been faithfully waiting. I am the fulfillment of all of the promises of Yahweh. Going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, I am the seed that was promised to Eve and promised to Abraham and promised to David. I am the servant who is announced through Isaiah. I am the one who brings true and lasting and perfect justice to the world. That's what I do. And so, yes, again, we should see in this the heart of Christ, the mind of Christ, as Paul talks about it in Philippians 2, which should be likewise in us. This heart, this mind that considers others more significant and gives himself for the sake of others who does justice who cares for the poor and the broken and the needy and the sick and the lame. We should walk in the steps of our Savior even as we wait for Him to come again and bring the perfect version of all of this. Because we're united to Him. And the life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. And good works have been prepared beforehand that we should walk in them because we are his workmanship. This is what he came to do. And all, all of the physical manifestations of, of, of the justice and, and the healing and, and all of that, was a picture of the true spiritual work that he would do in his people through his death and resurrection. 
so that we can come to the book of Revelation and we see this fulfilled in, in, in technicolor where there, there, there will be no more tears and there will be no more sickness and there will be no more death. Why? Because the life of Christ has so abundantly poured out on his people that everything is made right once again. That all the sad things will come untrue. That we will be what we aren't yet. All of this is what they waited for and what those first Christians had pictured for them in Christ. And what we now live in light of as we wait for the fulfillment and glory of these promises. And then we're told in the last few verses, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Notice he goes back to the rebuke at the end of, verse, of chapter 41. He told them, behold, look at these idols. They're futile, they're worthless, they're powerless, they're empty wind. I am not like that. They don't share in my glory because I don't share my glory. And this isn't some megalomaniac, self-interested statement. This is the statement from the only one who can rightly make such a statement. From the only one who is truly glorious and who holds all the world together and who stretched it out according to his will and providentially rules and interrules and overrules over all of the affairs to bring about his good, pleasing, and perfect will that he foreordained from before the foundations of the earth. This is the one who came and laid his life down for the sake of his people. This is the one who is glorious times ten. This is the one who rightly refuses to give the glory that is due to him to anything else and anyone else. Because everything and everyone was created not to take his glory, but to give him glory. This is why our shorter catechism starts where it does. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end. The thing for which we were created above all else is to glorify God to reflect back to him and to all the world the reality, the glorious reality of who he is. He will not give that away. Though we will try to find it in all kinds of created things, as Paul reminds us so convictingly in Romans 1, he will not give it away to anything else. Behold, the former things have come to pass. All that I've said would happen has happened. I said you would be enslaved in a land not your own for some 400 years, and you were. 
And I said I would bring you out with riches, and I did. And I said I would give to Abraham this land, and I did. And I told you in my law that if you don't walk according to the truth of my word, you will be cast out of the land, and you were. The former things have come to pass. Behold, new things I now declare. I'm doing something else. Not new that it's never been heard, but new that it's the next chapter of the redemptive story that had already been laid out. Because even if we go back to the law, we find there in Deuteronomy 30 that when you're cast out and when you're scattered, then I will do something and I will gather you in again from all the nations and I will write my law on your heart and you will worship me. These are the new things that he now declares. That his servant will come and gather in his people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people. And he will write his law on our hearts, even by his spirit. And he will open our mouths to worship him. Undoubtedly, this is what Paul had in mind when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old has gone, the new has come. This isn't just a statement of personal salvation. This isn't just a statement that I personally have been redeemed. This is a statement that, that roots our personal salvation, the redemption of individuals that roots it back in the very promises and eternal plan of God that the former things, they've come to pass. But now something new is happening. See, Israel's story is true for each one of us as well. He gave his law and we violated it and faithfully he convicts us of our sin and shows us our need for a savior. A Savior who came and died in our place that we might have life. This is why we can say the old things have passed away, the old things are passing away, and new things have come. That's the fulfillment of what he's promising here. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God's letting his people know this is what I will do. And I will do it through this humble servant who will come into this world and bring justice for all. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the glory of of Christ who comes to bring justice, but, but not with violence and, 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 and vainglorious triumph, but with gentleness and humility, laying his life down for his people that we might find our life in him. Teach us, Father, to wait in faith for him to come again and might he come quickly. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.